In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and communities. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Diaspora Podcast. My name is Akashika Mohula and I'm the founder of Wired Global Media and Advisory. The Diaspora Podcast is one of our productions. In the Diaspora Podcast, I speak with political leaders, policymakers, diplomats and journalists about their journey, their lives, their vision and views on the world. My guest on this Diwali special episode is the High Commissioner of India in Australia, His Excellency Manpreet Vohra. His Excellency was born in Punjab, north of India, the agricultural capital of India. And he studied economics and international trade with a brief stint in private sector before joining the Indian Foreign Service in 1988. Today, as a seasoned diplomat, popular for his leadership, courage and resilience, particularly when representing India in countries like Pakistan, China, Hong Kong, Mongolia, Afghanistan, Mexico, UK and now Australia as Ambassador or the High Commissioner. He commenced his assignment in Australia in April 2021, which is largest democracy and also the fastest growing major economies. Growing with that is also Australia's Indian diaspora, which is soon going to overtake the Australian Chinese diaspora. This episode is brought to you by Mahindra Rise. Mahindra Rise is an Indian foreign direct investment in Australia since 2005 with over 90 dealers across Australia today. Mahindra is world's leader and number one in tractor manufacturing. Mahindra youths are very popular in regional Australia and talking about the future, Mahindra has major plans in both automotive and agricultural sector. Australia is a key focus mark to Mahindra. With His Excellency Manpreet Vohra, we have a candid chin wag on his journey, upbringing, experiences from conflict zones, cold wars, COVID, especially from a time when a missile landed in his residence during his Indian mission in Pakistan. We also talk about why China and Korea have a free trade agreement with Australia and when India will be finalizing this. Amongst many other topics, we also take a deep dive into trade, commerce, education sector, national security, defense cooperation, foreign direct investment with a very special message from His Excellency for Diwali. Let's have a listen to this now. Excellency, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a delight to finally have you. So how is it going for you six months and beyond in Australia? How are you settling in? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, Akashika. Good to speak with you again. Uh, Things are going well. It's been almost six months since I got here, as you said. Um, Of course, uh, 
Some of it has been taken up by either quarantine or subsequent much longer lockdown. Uh, but otherwise, uh, things are okay. I've settled in well. I've got to make friends, meet a lot of people. There's quite a bit happening between the two countries, despite the pandemic. Um, so things are progressing well. Thank you. That's Thank lovely you. to hear. There's always an opportunity in disaster, as many say. So tell us a little bit more about you, your upbringing, your family, and how you chose foreign service and your deep connection with the Indian summer capital of India, Shimla. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Shimla is my hometown. I, was, I wasn't born there, born in Amritsar, but uh, I grew up in Shimla partly and uh, partly in Chandigarh. These are the only two cities I lived in uh, while I was still in school and then college and university. I passed out of school, college and university all in Chandigarh. I went to Punjab University, did my bachelor's in uh, economics then went and did a postgraduate diploma in international trade. And then I left uh, Chandigarh to take up my first job, which was in the private sector in Delhi. And I did that for two and a half years. Uh, and uh, That was a lot of fun. But uh, I decided that it wasn't really what I wanted. And I decided then to sit for the civil services exam and join the foreign service. I knew a little bit about the Foreign Service because of friends I made in college who were children of Foreign Service officers. And I'd heard from them about the Foreign Service life, about living in countries all over the world, about a lot of travel and exposure to different experiences. And that, uh, that intrigued me. Uh, I was also always quite fond of uh, being on top of the news and international affairs and uh, that was also something that interested me. So then I wrote the exam and I made it uh, after two attempts. I made it to the Foreign Service, which I joined in 88. And uh, it's been a good journey ever since, uh, 33 years plus now. I started my career overseas in Hong Kong, learned the language, Chinese language, uh, which I was pretty good with at one point of time, read, write and speak. I must confess I'm somewhat rusty now. Uh, but then after Hong Kong, I, I worked in China, I worked in Mongolia, the UK, Nairobi, Pakistan, Peru, uh, Afghanistan, Mexico, and now here. So this is my 10th overseas station and the last continent. <laughs> I have now lived in every <laughs> continent. Uh, uh, and uh, and it's, it's, been, it's, been, it's been a magnificent journey, uh, never a moment of regret at uh, joining the forums, hugely, hugely satisfied. Over to you. It's absolutely exhilarating for people like me who respect the integrity, the courage, and the big decisions that come with foreign service. So talking about that, of course, we'll come back to COVID once more. COVID is not going anywhere. <laughs> How was it for you to first realize in your service the importance of every decision you ascertain? I mean, representing one of the world's biggest democracies abroad is, is a massive thing. Please share some experiences with us, Your Excellency. Well, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's not always that I have decisions to make. Sometimes decisions are made uh, at headquarters and we have to uh, follow uh, instructions as well. But very often uh, you are uh, also left to your own devices and have to take your own decisions. So that is, in fact, the unique uh, part, I think, about the Foreign Service as opposed to any other 
civil service, you know, the domestic part of it, because here you are overseas and you are representing, when you speak, you are speaking on behalf of your entire country of, you know, 1.3, 1.4 billion people. Uh, so the responsibility of that is huge. Uh, like I said, the decision-making doesn't always uh, rest on uh, oneself. It, it is often either taken at uh, headquarters or it is a teamwork and then it is made. But once it is done, then uh, following that, speaking for uh, the country, negotiating on behalf of the country, trying to preserve the country's interests, uh, all that is uh, a very, very high degree of responsibility. So unlike our, our domestic civil servants who might have uh, also a lot of authority and power, uh, you know, we may have less of that because we're not really dealing with you know, citizen services, et cetera, too much. Um, but the responsibility that we have to take forward the interests of the country is uh, is huge. Um, so I've had to do that in um, in multiple geographies, uh, you know, while I've been overseas, or even when I've been at headquarters, but I've been sent out to attend conferences and negotiate documents, et cetera. And, you know, that's been, um, that's been uh, absolutely fascinating, I must say. And I think... Uh, about 10 years into my career, I was a director for disarmament and international security affairs. And that was soon after we had gone nuclear in 1999. And, uh, you know, things were, uh, things were uh, the external environment was somewhat uh, unfavorable to India as a result of our tests. Uh, but then to explain to the rest of the world, and I remember even I had to do it with Australian diplomats who would visit me in my office in New Delhi, um, explaining to them uh, why we had to do what we had to do, uh, why we continue, however, to be a responsible country threatening nobody, uh, that our uh, weapons were weapons of deterrence because of the geopolitical environment and the proliferation of weapons that had happened clandestinely uh, around us in our immediate neighborhood. Uh, you know, so those were hugely important uh, uh, moments uh, when we had to as it were, uh, explained to the world, convince them of our point of view. And I think it's uh, wonderful to see that uh, we did succeed in a major way. And within a years, in some cases, months, uh, we had got the world around to accept uh, that India did what it did, uh, understand why we did what we did. Uh, I think that particular uh, phase of my career uh, stands out in terms of uh, uh, of selling, as it were, a huge policy decision of the government of India. Subsequently, uh, I think on a bilateral level, I've had uh, two incredibly interesting postings, as you can imagine. Uh, first, as a deputy high commissioner in Islamabad, and uh, second, uh, more recently, as ambassador to Afghanistan. And you can imagine wow. how important these relationships are, uh, the kind of... Uh, problems we also face in some of the relationships, the kind of issues we have to deal with. And uh, here again, uh, representing the, the country, preserving our interests, um, managing uh, the relationship when it is good, managing it also when things are uh, going downhill or negative. Uh, you know, each of those uh, has its own challenges and uh, its own unique way of uh, handling and management. So I've had some interesting uh, times in my career. <laughs> Thank you, Akashika. <laughs> I'm sure you must be reminiscing most of them. 
And I read about that Afghanistan blast scenario that happened at the Indian Foreign Embassy. Were you the ambassador then, Your Excellency, when all of this yeah. saga was going on? Uh, well, I was dead when, you know, when the saga is a very long, long going saga. So, uh, but you, you, might, you might be referring to a blast at the embassy in 2008. Uh, July Indeed. And no, I was not in Afghanistan that time, but I was next door in Islamabad. Oh, uh, my God. Yes. Sure, sure. Well, well when I was, what do I say? When I was in Afghanistan, as I said, we did have uh, uh, quite a few bombs go off uh, in Kabul and elsewhere uh, in the country. Uh, we had uh, a suicide, a major suicide attack on our consulate general in Jalalabad. Uh, we had oh uh, a rocket that landed in my residence in Kabul. We had your uh, residence. Yes, amazing. <laughs> so, so, so one has been uh, one has been close to the action, uh, but uh, the I think the bomb blast that you are referring to is from an earlier period in July two thousand and eight. Very well, very very intriguing. I must say, you could write a book on all all these, uh, you know, stellar experiences because that's where you learn so much about yourself and the purpose. I mean, historically, <laughs> diplomacy is probably the world's second oldest profession. I mean, Harold Nicholson, the British diplomat, author and politician, he suggested that diplomacy began at the dawn of history, perhaps when the inhabitants of some caves realized that it might be mutually advantageous to come to an understanding with the neighboring cave dwellers about the limits of their respective hunting territories. So talking about that, uh, Your Excellency, tell me a little bit more about the conflict and cold wars that you've seen all, it all along, you know, allies, fees, you know, share some experiences, particularly from your very exciting times in Islamabad, Kabul, and also China. I think that'll, uh, that'll take, up, take up much of the time we have for this interview. Uh, the experiences are, uh, are far too many, uh, but I... Suppose um, I could uh, talk about uh, about uh, one particular incident when I was in Pakistan, and uh, that was a seminal incident, I think, which continues to resonate till today, uh, which were the terrorist attacks in Mumbai, you know, November mm-hmm. 2008. Uh, that, 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 was, uh, that was a key moment, uh, really, in uh, our nation's history or the history of our bilateral relationship with Pakistan. And I must say that uh, uh, things were actually uh, in the immediate uh, few months or years uh, before this incident, uh, things had improved substantially in our relationship and the composite dialogue was going on. I think um, the then president, CEO, army chief all rolled into one. General Pervez Musharraf had realized uh, that uh, it was important uh, talks and uh, try and uh, solve problems uh, with uh, India. And so we had a considerably long period when uh, things were progressing rather well on multiple fronts and we were making progress on various uh, issues of bilateral relations uh, from trade to, uh, to military, to boundary, people-to-people contact and travel, etc. cetera. Um, and then uh, suddenly in the middle of all this uh, uh, we had uh, this uh, a terrorist attack, which had taken, of course, months in uh, planning and executing, uh, which then was uh, traced back to 
authorities uh, and agencies of Pakistan. So you can imagine um, what that meant and how that soured, as it were, uh, the atmosphere and the relations and certainly our belief in, uh, in uh, you know, what we could do or how much we could trust or not uh, the other mm-hmm. side. And, um, uh, you know, that's never uh, ever allowed uh, our relationship to once again be restored to the levels it was before. Uh, so that, I think, was uh, one very, very seminal uh, experience, incident, and I happened to be in the thick of it uh, when it happened um, and was uh, also left to, uh, to uh, manage, as it were, the aftermath of that for, for many more months before I left Islamabad for my next job. Uh, so I thought, uh, you know, that would uh, always, that experience, that incident uh, would uh, stand out as unique, not just as an incident on its own, but uh, its impact on a very important neighborhood bilateral relation. Definitely. So your Twitter account says you're an Arsenal fan and following the two plus two dialogue, how do you think the defense cooperation is evolving with Australia now? I mean, it's a pretty crucial area with so many bodies involved. How are we ensuring that the highest form of integrity is also maintained in the exchange? Right. Well, I'm an Arsenal fan, which is a football club, uh, you know, so it's it's not a military arsenal. <laughs> but you link up that. <laughs> oh, truly, <laughs> well. I think you're linking up Arsenal as a military arsenal with the two plus two dialogue. No, Arsenal is a is a is a football club in England. Uh, you know, English very well is what of I follow. <laughs> so it's no relations with defense, etc. <laughs> I mean, but, I've uh, never seen Australia and India evolve to such a paramount time of you know having that dynamic exchange in defense. And uh, following your Twitter account, I said, well, this is it. This is His Excellency. Please carry on, Your Excellency. Well, well coming to the two plus two, uh, you know, uh, that's, a, that's a natural outcome, I think, of uh, expanding and deepening linkages in India and Australia. As you know, and as your listeners would know, uh, we upgraded our relationship to a comprehensive strategic partnership in June last year, when there was a virtual summit between Prime Ministers Narendra Modi and Scott Morrison. And uh, part of that was to to start a a 2 plus 2 dialogue at the ministerial level. We have been having 2 plus 2 conversations even before that. Uh, at the level of senior officials, but it was decided that the ministers meet in the two plus two format. Uh, the two plus two is a is a fairly unique format. Uh, you know, uh, not not too many countries have it with too many other partners. So it is it is something that you do only with the very special partners. So just the fact that there's a two plus two ministerial with Australia uh, means that. Uh, there is something special about this relationship for either side. So this was the first meeting at the ministerial level, which happened in September when uh, Foreign Minister Marie Spain and uh, Defence Minister Peter Dutton travelled to New Delhi. Um, It was an in-person meeting despite the problems of travel and pandemic. Then that was, uh, uh, like I said, uh, it was uh, in a sense uh, a very natural flow Uh, from what all we have been doing as two countries uh, with each other on the defense and strategic front uh, for uh, a number of years. 
to an extent that has also been uh, bolstered by other new partnerships uh, that have evolved or that have been revived recently, uh, such as, for example, the Four Nation Quad, uh, where yes. again, you know, the, the two of us partner with two other uh, very uh, countries that everyone is close with, uh, you know, United States and uh, Japan. Uh, so uh, uh, the the uh, idea is that uh, that uh, the relationship is now so close and so comprehensive and so strategic that uh, meeting together as uh, foreign ministries, which of course look after a very large gamut of the relationship uh, to uh, the defense and the, the defense ministries, which of course look at uh, a smaller footprint, uh, but the two are important uh, for strategic partners. And uh, that's how uh, this format works. And uh, that's how the discussions went. Uh, they were very positive. There's a joint statement that you would have seen that was issued um, after the talks. And uh, that will show to you both level of trust and confidence uh, that has uh, now evolved between the two sides, uh, how much we are already doing uh, in terms of a whole lot of work on almost every possible area of uh, economic development, technology, securing the future in multiple ways, uh, all of that. And uh, uh, more specifically also about, uh, you know, things that we would like to further do in the future. So that was an important uh, meeting. Uh, subsequently, of course, uh, as again, you would know, uh, the same month, a few days later, the two prime ministers were also able to meet briefly on the sidelines of the Quad yes. in-person summit in Washington, D.C. So things are evolving very well between our, our two nations. And the two plus two at the ministerial level uh, is a very important marker in that journey. Back Absolutely. How, how is India going at the UNSC? Please elaborate. Well, uh, we've been uh, a member uh, uh, since January. That is when we took our seat. We will be there till the end of next year. It's a two-year seat. And uh, it's, been, um, it's been an important uh, time, as it turned out, for India to be on the Security Council uh, with uh, a whole host of issues uh, before the world. Uh, indeed, uh, in August, uh, when... Uh, when uh, a lot of uh, important developments uh, took place in uh, Afghanistan, uh, India happened to be the president uh, of the security. And, uh, you know, that uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a monthly president of the Security Council, you probably know this. So he happened to be the president for the month. So a lot of, uh, uh, you know, initiatives and discussions had to be steered by us, uh, leading also to some some very uh, good sound uh, resolutions of the Security Council. Uh, and uh, now, of course, uh, we are still busy with the whole lost lot of uh, issues that do come up before the Security Council all the time. Uh, things are going well. We are investing heavily in that. Um, we've had a historic first as part of uh, this membership of the Security Council this time around. Uh, we've had our Prime Minister himself chair meetings, we've had the foreign minister chair meetings, we've had uh, very high level uh, attention um, uh, is, is what we have given uh, to the Security Council, which shows the importance we hold the Security Council and the entire United Nations multilateral. Thank you.
Absolutely. International politics is a serious business, Your Excellency. Though talking about international business and India and Australia, uh, Trade Minister of Australia, Dan Tehan, and Trade Minister of India, Rish Goyalji, announced that FTA could be reached around early harvest. So is this something that's that's going to be a Christmas surprise or a Makkah Sankranti surprise? When is it all happening? And what would it look like for foreign direct investment in Australia like Mahindra? Right. Well, um, um, it won't be uh, such a surprise because it's already been announced that uh, we intend to uh, finalize an early harvest agreement, which is like a halfway house to a full free trade agreement or a comprehensive economic cooperation agreement, which is the formal term for it. Uh, we've announced that the early harvest agreement we will try to finalize that uh, by mid-December. Uh, so that is almost upon us. It's about a couple of months away only or slightly less than that now. Uh, so the negotiators of the two sides are working with each other uh, and uh, trying to reach this uh, early harvest agreement that once that is done, that will be followed uh, with uh, further talks to arrive at a full FTA, which hopefully be able to in uh, in another year after that. Um, and now the, uh, the early harvest agreement, as the name would itself suggest, is an interim trade agreement, uh, which covers... Uh, uh, rather than every tariff line, it uh, covers uh, a limited number of tariff lines on which uh, uh, free trade can be agreed upon. It also covers uh, a number of other issues, including uh, services, including uh, rules of origin, uh, in dispute settlement mechanisms. Uh, so all of that uh, is what uh, will be the contours of the early harvest agreement, which will then hopefully uh, be graduated into a full comprehensive economic cooperation. Uh, now, that would, uh, of course, be uh, very welcome news, I think, for business either side. Uh, it would uh, signal the trust we have uh, in the complementarity of our two economies uh, and that we consider uh, a free trade agreement with Australia and Australia considers it with India as a win-win scenario for both sides. Uh, that is how uh, uh, this is uh, this is uh, being looked at and uh, being approached. Now, in terms of foreign direct investment, uh, that is something, of course, not radically dependent on uh, on a free trade agreement. Uh, there is already a substantial amount of FDI from India into Australia. In fact, more than there is the other way around. Uh, but we believe that uh, huge opportunities are presented to Australian businesses, Australian companies, to be a part of the growth story of India, uh, which, as you know, is right now the fastest growing major economy in the world. And as per also the latest predictions of the IMF and the World Bank, India will be the fastest growing major economy in 2021 and also in 2022. Uh, with growth of that kind, with the increased prosperity in India, with the size of our market, with the, with the huge middle class, which is aspirational, which is high consumption, uh, there should be a lot of opportunities. Well, there are a lot of opportunities for companies around the world, and we do attract, India does attract a very significant amount of foreign direct investment now, going back a few years till today. Uh, Australia also, we believe, should be and can be a part of that growth story. 
and uh, both contribute to India and of course contribute to its own bottom line uh, by, by investing. So that's uh, how I look at it. We are hoping very much that we will see more FDI from Australia flow into India, as of course, no doubt, there will probably be more FDI flowing into Australia from India as well. Back to you. I absolutely enjoy driving my Mahindra XUV in the terrains of Toowoomba, a regional town here, where it actually feels as if you're driving in the fields of Punjab. So uh, tell me a little bit more, uh, Your Excellency, when are you planning to visit Queensland again? Oh, thank you. I would love to be there tomorrow if I could. Uh, I was I was there in July, as as you know. Um, it was a it was a very uh, wonderful trip for me uh, and my wife, who happened to accompany me. I met uh, much of uh, leadership of Queensland, uh, many ministers and other senior officials. I met universities. I met uh, uh, trading organizations. I met the Indian community. Uh, both in Brisbane and in Gold Coast. I met some old friends I have uh, from my school days who live in Brisbane. Uh, so it was absolutely wonderful. I was very impressed, I must say, with Queensland or uh, you know the, the, the more limited amount of Queensland that I could see on that one single trip. Uh, but it was apparent to me uh, what uh, a dynamic place that is, what a huge uh, and important economy Queensland is and how much is possible to be more uh, between uh, India and Queensland. Uh, so I would hope very much to follow up on that. Uh, uh, conversations that I had over there, uh, look for more uh, specific things we can do together. And therefore, I do hope I'll be able to come uh, soon. Uh, there is, of course, uh, a lot of other places uh, in this large and beautiful country that is Australia, which also uh, require and demand my attention. So I do need to travel to other places also, which I haven't been able to because of uh, these unfortunate lockdowns in places and uh, interstate travel restrictions. Um, but I will get down to those as well. Um, but when I do come to Queensland, uh, I hope you will uh, take me on a ride in your Mahindra XUV. Indeed. <laughs> through, those, through, those, through those rural fields that you talk about. Absolutely, Your Excellency. I will take you for a tour to the Mahindra fleet and also to the fields of Queensland. You know, talking about Mahindra, Mahindra in Australia have been here since 2005 with 90 dealerships across the country. Also was number one tractor manufacturer in automotive. Mahindra youths are also popular in the regional Australia. I mean, the other day while I was driving through the terrains of Queensland and they use Mahindra youths. So I'm really looking forward to your visit and also checking out how we can add to the future growth in automotive ag business here in India through our Indian resources. I must say your diaspora friends and the leaders are a big fan of yours. They really enjoyed your company and everybody is just counting days to see you come back. <laughs> so you're they're very kind. They're very kind, I must say. Uh, they also, uh, they also uh, helped me in understanding Queensland and uh, the community much better. So my thanks to them also for the respect and regard that they gave me. Thank With you. pleasure, Your Excellency. So... 
Talking about ag sector, particularly the technology, what do new opportunities in ag, particularly in the extended COVID world, looks like for, of course, India and Australia, the best friends of today's times? <laughs> well, you know, uh, agriculture uh, is uh, hugely important, uh, as you can imagine, uh, for India. Uh, it is also important for Australia, and there are major strengths that Australia has developed over the years, technologies, systems in agriculture, uh, which uh, are uh, important for us also to try and, uh, well, raise our productivity, uh, be more efficient in the use of water, uh, reduce uh, grain loss in storage and transportation of grains, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, these are all um, areas where I think uh, we can uh, cooperate uh, and learn from each other. Particularly, India certainly can gain from the Australian expertise in these areas. Uh, some of this is already happening. Uh, there is uh, uh, discussions, working groups, uh, uh, you know, projects already working on all of this. And I therefore I think the Future And so I'm, I'm not talking of just trade, uh, which obviously uh, can be done wherever it makes sense and wherever it's possible uh, in, in agricultural produce. Uh, but in terms of the larger agriculture ecosystem, there is a lot that we learn and share uh, with each other, um, particularly India from Australia. Uh, there are also uh, issues uh, of uh, food processing. Uh, where I think uh, there is a huge uh, potential. Uh, once again, I spoke about FDI from Australia into India. I think uh, Australian food companies, food processing companies, Australian food brands uh, ought to look at uh, doing business in India by setting up uh, value addition manufacturing units over there. Back to you. That's fabulous, Your Excellency. So what are the real barriers According to you, India's foreign investments continue to embrace. And how are these being bridged through your diplomacy? Well, the barriers, uh, I think, uh, in Australia, if you are talking of FDI from Australia into India, uh, I would say that uh, the barrier seems to be uh, a certain uh, hesitancy or uh, a reluctance uh, on the part of Australian businesses and Australian companies to venture forth into relatively lesser known markets because for far too long, uh, Australian businesses and companies have been focusing on almost a single market, uh, you know, which has, of course, meant uh, you know, very handsome business and returns for them. But now that uh, there is, I think, uh, enough evidence to support a transition and a transformation, as it were, and diversification into newer markets, uh, into newer ways of doing business, into Australian companies becoming uh, more than just producers and exporters of primary commodities uh, and go more into manufacturing and value addition. Um, I think uh, uh, that is where uh, a country like India offers uh, immense opportunities. Uh, and the barrier seems to be this inertia, as it were, uh, to, uh, to move forth more aggressively, pay a little more attention, spend a few more marketing dollars, uh, and uh, to look at India in terms of uh, market development strategy rather than a purely mercantile or trading strategy. 
Uh, now, that is something that uh, I hope to be able to change with my efforts and efforts of my colleagues over here, uh, educate the Australian business community more uh, about India uh, and what we offer there, the huge improvements that have taken place in India, in our ease of doing business, in our innovation, attractiveness, uh, in our uh, overall business environment, the handsome returns to be made in India, um, but in that it's got to be treated as at least a middle distance uh, race rather than a hundred meter dash. Uh, and uh, that is going to be my effort over here. And I hope that uh, we will succeed in uh, changing that scenario in the months and years to come. Back to you. Thank you, Your Excellency. So like China, India also loves sending its students here to study in Australia. I mean, it's a, it's a very important export and every student who comes from India brings a lot more with them uh, than one can imagine. So India has the fastest growing young population, as you just mentioned, and uh, you spoke about the risk of losing Indian international students in Australia recently. So how are things moving in that direction? I mean, the borders are opening. New South Wales has a very different perspective to Queensland and that of Western Australia. So in that state, the different approach each state has, how are you conquering that to ensure that the Indian students here and incoming are looked after? Well, you know, Bob, much of that, frankly, is in the realm of sovereign Australian decisions. Uh, and those have been uh, obviously impacted by the approach that the country has taken towards managing this uh, pandemic. That, therefore, has meant uh, closure of borders uh, for, I suppose, far longer than anybody had thought it would be necessary and has therefore led to uh, considerable disruptions and difficulties for a large number of Indian students who happen to be stuck overseas and not over here physically. Uh, and uh, that has led to a certain amount of frustration, uh, even anger at times, uh, with the, the uncertainty caused by this very long border closure. Hopefully, we are uh, coming now to the end of that, and Australia is uh, going to be adopting policies that will welcome back international travelers, including students who I do think uh, the government, both the federal government and the state governments, will be looking upon as a priority cohort uh, when they decide who all to let back in, in what phases and in what numbers, in what conditions, etc. cetera. Um, so perhaps uh, the wait is now uh, almost over. Uh, I'm not saying dramatically improve for every last person who's been stranded uh, in, in, in short shift. But I think uh, the beginning is about to be made. And um, uh, in the course of the coming months, we will hopefully see a very large number of them able to return to campus and to their lives uh, in Australia and to their education in Australia. Hopefully, by the time the February semester opens, uh, we would have a very large number of them back here. But like I said, at the end of the day, uh, this is all in the realm of uh, sovereign Australian policy. Back to you. Absolutely, Your Excellency. What about, um, is the new Indian education sector mandate that occurred earlier this year for foreign um, investors in the sector to invest in India, uh, have institutions running there, etc., 
what are the new things perhaps Australia is leveraging to start uh, to start up in India that way? Yeah, well, the new education policy in India, uh, you know, uh, first and foremost, I think the headline of that is that uh, foreign universities can now open uh, campuses in India. I think some of the rules and regulations are are still to be framed. So one is yet to see, uh, you know, everything in black and white, but that's the 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 sort of the headline change, as it were. And I know that um, uh, most major universities of the world, not just of Australia, are looking forward to that opportunity, uh, as is uh, is Australia or Australian university. Uh, but um, also, uh, quite importantly, uh, is the sector of uh, vocational education and upgrading of skills, uh, because that allows uh, actually the provider of those, uh, that sort of education, TAFE sort of education, as it were, uh, a much larger pool of people to train uh, and, and benefit, you know, rather than four-year graduate programs, you have shorter vocational training programs, which can therefore uh, by definition, uh, impact and both attract and impact a much larger population. That I think is also a huge opportunity that India offers uh, to look uh, beyond just uh, you know regular you know, mirror images of uh, of higher education campuses, um, but also to look at uh, vocational training campuses, which can be set up in much larger numbers in much larger number of Indian regions and districts and, and towns and cities. Uh, that, again, uh, I think is a huge opportunity for Australia. Other than that, of course, uh, things which are already happening will continue to happen and will continue to offer opportunities, which is partnering uh, with Indian educational establishments for uh, you know, common curriculum development for even co-branding degrees, uh, you know, that will always stay. There are joint research and academic exchanges that happen uh, all the time. Uh, there, there is scope for much more of that to happen. Uh, so there are opportunities uh, you know, of multiple sort of dimension kinds of opportunities that are there for Indian and Australian educational institutions. Thank you, Your Excellency. I really admire, you know, your energy and vigor. You know, you've been representing India abroad, not not just in Australia, a massive responsibility, you know, dealing with many personalities, accommodating opinions are so important in uh, diplomacy. How have you been using the art to influence this in foreign affairs? What are your mantras? Oh, the art. How have I been using the art? Oh, my own mantra, I see, okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, Your talismans. Well, it's, 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 it's not rocket science, really. I think uh, first and foremost, uh, you've, got to, you've got to enjoy meeting people and conversing with people. Uh, you know, that's important because so much of diplomacy is about meeting people, talking to them, understanding them, making them understand you, uh, finding common ground, meeting ground, looking at opportunities to do more things together, looking at ways to minimize the negativities if there might be some in a relationship. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, that's really the mantra that, uh, that I try to follow, that uh, I like to remain excited with the prospect of meeting new, pe- new people, uh, you know, uh, discovering 
unknown subjects and fields and understanding them better and then try to find the right partners and talk to them you know, on a sustained way, uh, argue where required, explain where required, understand where needed, uh, and, uh, and try and make progress. I think uh, that is really the only mantra for uh, diplomats. Who are the world leaders, you know, some may perhaps some world leaders that inspire you? Well, there are, there are many, and I think I would be doing disservice by naming just a few. Uh, so perhaps I'll uh, take the easier way out of uh, not naming uh, anyone, uh, certainly not a world leader who's currently on the stage. Uh, if one was to look, however, at, uh, you know, historic uh, or historical leaders that have, uh, you know, inspired me uh, greatly, uh, there are obviously uh, leaders from our own country, uh, you know, that, uh, that I look up to for what they managed to achieve. Uh, people like Mahatma Gandhi and Sardar Patel, who've been so seminal uh, in our journey, both towards independence uh, and in our consolidation as a new modern country. Uh, certainly, I would, I would name them. Uh, uh, otherwise, uh, I would also name people who have, uh, who have uh, fought, as it were, for the underprivileged and the rights of the, those who were sort of downtrodden or oppressed. Uh, and therefore, I would talk of people like Martin Luther King and, and Nelson Mandela, uh, who have uh, who have been uh, extremely inspiring uh, for me. Thank you. Have you met the foreign minister of Australia yet? Yes, I've had the good fortune of uh, meeting Her Excellency. Uh, that was uh, that was a very nice experience. We had a fascinating conversation. So it's uh, nearly Diwali, Your Excellency, and the diaspora have been at a very sore point, but there is hope. Borders are opening. We would really welcome a beautiful message from you to all of them, no matter what roles they are in. Some of us feel that the Indian mission in Australia is like a family here to us. So your message for the diaspora, please. Thank you, Akashika. Well, first and foremost, I hope that everybody would feel that the Indian mission here, both the High Commission in Canberra and all our consulates general and our honorary consul in Brisbane, I hope all everybody would feel that, uh, that we are a part of you, uh, that uh, we are together as a family. We are certainly, all of us are certainly here to serve uh, the diaspora and its needs, uh, both um, uh, happy occasions as well as uh, any challenges that we might have to face together. Diwali, uh, of course, is hugely uh, important and symbolic for all of us. So first and foremost, let me wish you all a very joyous uh, Diwali, which is uh, almost upon us. In a few days, we'll be celebrating the Festival of Lights. Um, and I would uh, very much uh, pray and hope that the new year, which is also signified by Diwali, uh, would bring uh, better health uh, and uh, peace and prosperity for everybody, certainly the Indian diaspora, but certainly also for our Australian brothers and sisters. I would hope for peace and harmony and unity among all the various Indian communities that make up the diaspora. I would uh, hope and pray for uh, tolerance and understanding, for diversity, to believe in that diversity as a point of strength rather than anything that uh, is uh, divisive. I would hope very much that uh, the COVID pandemic uh, is, uh, is over. Uh, well before we enter the next Diwali, 12 months later, 
And uh, I would also hope very much to get the chance in the new year to travel and meet as many of your listeners as I can. Thank you, Akashi. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Your Excellency, and getting to know you. And that's the promise. Next time you're in Queensland, a ride in our very famous Mahindra XUV and some Morton Day bugs will be on the platter. Have a lovely Diwali to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Akashika. Pleasure to talk to you and to, and through to, through you to your listeners. Thank you for the opportunity. All the best. Thank you, Your Excellency. Bye.